We'll be praying on Tuesday night on Zoom if you want to join us for that. And then, as I say, back in person next Sunday morning. Revelation chapter 12. Appreciate you listening. I hope these Advent messages are enlightening and encouraging. It would be remiss of me not to wish my mom a happy birthday if she's listening. Hopefully she's got the technology to work. We're really familiar with the scenes of Advent, the scenes of nativity that come from Matthew and Luke. So we've all been exposed to those since we were kids. We've probably at some stage in our childhood had a tea towel tied around our head and been uh, asked to, to perform the role of a shepherd in a nativity play. Maybe we've even had the the high esteem of, of being a sheep or a donkey. Uh, we've seen wise men dressed up. Um, reminds me of the story that Ken Robinson tells in his TED talk about some kids, or one in particular, who got a little bit mixed up at the primary school nativity play. And the three wise men came in and one of them said, I bring gold. And the second one said, I bring myrrh. And the third one said, Frank sent this. Love that. Never gets old. Uh, but we've all seen the Christmas cards where you've got pictures of everybody huddled around the manger on a frosty night and it's all very cozy and sentimental. The animals in the background, that manger's perfectly clean and all the straw and hay looks really soft and, and cozy and it's all, it's all quite romantic and it's all quite nice. But as Eugene Peterson points out, John has a nativity as well, not just Matthew and Luke. Mark does not record the nativity scenes in his gospel, but John does have a nativity. And Eugene Peterson says that it is John's spirit-anointed task to supplement the work of Matthew and Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness. John's nativity scene is a bit different from the other gospels. And in fact, John's nativity scene is not even in his gospel his nativity scene is in the book of Revelation, which he also wrote. Probably he's about 80 years old at the time. He's on an island called Patmos where he has been exiled because he's been telling people about Jesus. That's quite funny because uh, the, the emperor exiles John to Patmos, tries to uh, punish him, isolate him, prevent him from being able to tell people about Jesus. And while John is on the island of Patmos, he gets this incredible revelation of Jesus that has encouraged the church now for 2,000 years. Silly emperor got it wrong on that occasion. So let's read John's nativity scene in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. You feel free to try to imagine what this would look like on a Christmas card. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. 
The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, I've never seen a Christmas card with that on it. Uh, And if you did see a Christmas card with that on it, you might ask for it to be removed from the stand because it would be a little bit uh, offensive, maybe not quite politically correct, but very biblically accurate. John presents a dark reality at the nativity scene that is hinted at in the other Gospels. When you read the early chapters of Matthew, you read about a king called Herod who was determined to kill the young Jesus. And in his determination to kill him, he killed many young baby boys. You read in Luke about a word to to Mary that a sword would pierce her heart. That there will be uh, darkness and there will be pain. And we see a glimpse of it in Matthew and we see a glimpse of it in Luke. This dark presence, this darkness that is awakened and stirred by the birth of Jesus. But it comes out in John's version here in black and white. You see there's an unwelcome visitor at the manger. Uh, In the corner of the stable between the donkey and the sheep, there is a dragon according to John's nativity. Now, I really wish some primary school somewhere would get a hold of this and understand it and put a dragon in their nativity play. Do you like that? Yeah. I have a nephew who has an outrageously good dragon suit. And if anybody out there wants to borrow it, I'm sure he'd be okay with that. You can imagine the, the sort of the teachers sorting out the kids and saying, right, you, you can be the cow, you, you go stand there, and you can be the donkey, you go stand there. You can be Mary... Now, you're about to give birth in our nativity place, so you need to go and just lie like this. Uh, and you, you can be the dragon. You need to stand over here and get ready to devour the child. <laughs> and then you have a more accurate version of John's nativity. Can you imagine the conversations that it would open up with the parents afterwards? Once all of the complaints have been dealt with, you would be able to do all sorts of theology with them in the car park after the nativity play. Why was there a dragon? Well, if you turn to Revelation, so on. I have actually seen one nativity scene that features a dragon. Actually, it's a dinosaur, but it's pretty close to a dragon. And it came from a very profound theologian called, do you remember his name? Mr. Bean. Now, you need to watch this this afternoon if you haven't seen it in a while. But Mr. Bean, in his Christmas special, goes into a shop. And while he's in the shop, he gets distracted by the nativity scene that's set up on display. So he goes and he begins to play with the nativity scene like a child, because he's a bit childish. And uh, initially, he's, he's fairly, you know, sweet and innocent about it. And he's just playing with the figures and he brings in some sheep and a sheep dog and then a tractor and trailer come in which aren't quite you know authentically in context and take away the sheep um, but then he does something that is remarkable now nobody writing this meant it he didn't mean it 
But I remember watching this a couple of years ago and thinking, that's actually ridiculous. Because he brings a dinosaur that looks a bit like a dragon into the nativity scene. Do you remember this? Yeah, you do. Into the nativity scene. And it comes sort of bouncing along at the, at the back of the stable. This, this, this dragon, this dinosaur comes in. And I remember just being amazed and thinking, church, you need to watch this. This is the most accurate depiction of the nativity scene ever because this dragon has appeared. Eugene Peterson writing about Revelation 12 says, This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth does not just stir wonder. His birth stirs up evil in the form of this dragon. So let's look at these verses briefly. Verse 1 of John 12 talks about a woman who is pregnant, in pain, and about to give birth. Who is she? The easy answer would be to say that she's Mary, but she's not exclusively Mary. Mary's definitely in the picture here, but this is not just Mary, it's more a case, I think, of that Mary became a representation of the woman that John sees. It could be, as well as a little bit of Mary in the mix, you see, what Revelation does is it takes lots of images and coalesces them all together and creates this big sort of canvas for us to look at. So there's a bit of Mary here, but I think there's also a bit of Eve here, because last week, We saw in Genesis 3 that the exile began and Advent began when when Eve and Adam were put out of the garden and promised a deliverer. Eve was told that there would be pain in childbirth. And here we have this woman in labor, in pain, about to give birth. And I think there's a little bit of Eve in this woman as well as a little bit of Mary. But ultimately her clothes give her away. In verse 1, it says that she's clothed with the sun, the moon's under her feet, and there's a crown of 12 stars on her head. And the most important thing, if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, is an understanding of the Old Testament. And when you read that description of how the woman appears, you think of Joseph's dream about the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, and you realize he's talking about his family, and this woman represents the family of Israel the 12 tribes, God's covenant people, the people from whom Abraham was told that the whole world would be blessed. This is the people of God. And this woman represents the people of God. And there's been a promise, a long promise, that from this people there would come a Messiah, a deliverer, right back from Eve in the garden, all the way through the history of God and his people, this promise of a deliverer that would come. And now everything has sort of focused in on one night in Bethlehem, on one particular young woman who represents this nation at this point. Everything has now just gradually come closer and closer and closer and focused in on her. But it's not just about her. She represents something greater. So we have this woman. That's one of the players in the scene. And then verse 3 and 4, we have a dragon. Who is the dragon? The dragon, we're told in verse 9, is that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. At our nativity scene that is inspired by John, we not only have a woman in labor, but we have 
a serpent dragon figure in the background. Now, you just hang on here for a second. Is this the same serpent that was in the garden that we talked about last week? Yes, it is the same serpent. He's always an unwelcome visitor. He was an unwelcome visitor in the Garden of Eden all those millennia ago. And he was an unwelcome visitor at the stable, the manger in Bethlehem a couple of thousand years ago as well. Is this the same serpent that deceived humanity back in the garden? Yes, it is. Is this the same serpent who was cast down into the dust? Yes, it is. Is it the same serpent who would later be crushed by the son of the woman? Yes, it is is. And then we read in verse 5 of her son. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This is quoting Psalm 2, if you want to go and have a look at it later on. This, This child, who is no ordinary child, he is the king of kings. He will rule all nations. And his entire life is summed up here as briefly as it is probably anywhere in the entire Bible. She gave birth to a son. He'll rule the nations with an iron scepter. He was snatched up to God. It's also worth noting, uh, and you really should watch it later, that in Mr. Bean's nativity, the child gets snatched out of the manger by an angel and lifted up into the air. It really is quite profound. But Mr. Bean is not done with us yet. He has more profound theology that he wants to bring because if you watch his scene of the nativity with the dragon, dinosaur, serpent in the background, he also brings in a tank. Now, this is almost too much for me. I want this man to come and teach me the Bible because he has this profound understanding ignorant of it but he there's something going on here that he sees he brings in a tank to start firing at the dragon in the background and he gets it he gets something because the nativity scene is an act of war now he also brings in a robot out of doctor who and i cannot get any theological significance out of that so we'll forget about that but we'll stick with a dragon and we'll stick with a tank because this is an act of war that's going on in Bethlehem and on your Christmas card pictures. Listen to verse 7 of chapter 12. There was war in heaven. As this child is born on earth, as he lives, dies, is resurrected and ascends to heaven, there is war going on in heaven. It's like the scene shifts in John's vision from what he sees at his nativity, to what's going on when he pulls the curtain back. What's actually going on behind the scenes is there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. And then here is a cracker verse. But he was not strong enough. Okay? No matter how imposing, no matter how threatening, no matter how powerful that serpent dragon may appear, he was not strong enough. And he lost, they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. 
In fact, you read in, in about three or four verses there, and after that, you read six times that he was cast down. It's absolutely emphatic. Down into the dust you go, serpent. Down to the ground. Down to the earth. In fact, when you read this in Greek, it says that he was bounced out of heaven. It's almost comical. It's almost cartoonish, this image of the Satan, the dragon, getting bounced like a basketball and chucked out of heaven down to the earth. Now, what does a downcast dragon do? What will he get up to now that he has been defeated? This war in the heavens has taken place in John's vision. How the timing of this all works is is not something that we're to try to get our heads around. All we know is that while this child is born, lives, dies, is resurrected and is ascended, a war is won at the same time. What does a downcast dragon do once he's been put out of heaven? What does he get up to? It says in verse 12 that he is filled with fury. He knows his time is short. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. He is raging. He has been bounced out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And in his rage and in his fury, he pursues the woman from who the child came. But he can't get to the woman because God protects her in the next few verses of the chapter. And then in verse 17, look who he goes after then. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you. And that's me. The people of God who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is not ancient Israel. That's us, the followers of Jesus. Revelation draws back the curtain and unveils to us why it is that life is sometimes really, really hard. And why following Jesus sometimes can be really, really hard. There is a dragon, a serpent, who has been cast down from heaven. And frankly, he believes in the second coming of Jesus a lot more than we do. He knows that Jesus will come again. He knows that there will be a glorious appearing, a second advent. He knows that, and he knows that his time is short. So in his fury and rage, he pursues the people of God. He pursues all of humanity, every single person who is made in God's image, which means every single person Throughout history, every human being bears the image of God, no matter how they live. But he goes after the church with particular rage, the people of God. In the presence of pain and suffering in the world, the presence of disappointment and hurt and violence and abuse and every other dark and evil thing, the presence of evil and suffering and pain in this world is not a sign 
that the dragon serpent is victorious. It is not a sign that he is gaining the ascendancy or the upper hand in this battle. It is a sign that there is a desperate, defeated foe who in the last moments that he has is trying to wreak as much havoc against the people of God as he possibly can. He can't touch the sun. He can't get at the woman. He goes after the rest of her offspring, the people of God, which is you and me. And this is not a battle that is, is held off for the future. Be careful how you read Revelation and be careful who you read on Revelation. This is not something that's a way out in the beyond, a way out years from now to happen at the end of time. This battle has raged throughout the church age and is raging right now. When the curtain is drawn back, you see what's going on behind the scenes. And what are the tactics of a downcast dragon? If you were a dragon and you'd been bounced out of heaven and thrown down to the earth, what would you do? In verse 15, it says that from the mouth, from out of his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. Now, what comes out of the mouth of a serpent? What is it that we associate with a serpent's mouth more than probably anything else in all of nature and all of creation? The serpent's mouth is a place of poison. And the way that this downcast dragon does battle is by a flood of poison from his mouth. Lies, deceit, and slander. It's the complete opposite of a flood that, that comes, a river that comes from the Lamb of God. We read at the end of Revelation about a river of life flowing from the throne and from the Lamb. This is a different flood, a different river. It's a torrent of slander and deceit and lies. That's the way a downcast dragon goes after people. In, in terms of deceit, he's called, Jesus calls him the father of lies in John chapter 8. And the devil throughout history, from the garden and today, is telling people lies about who God is, misrepresenting God to the world. He is a liar. He does not tell the truth about God, nor does he tell the truth about you, about who you are, about your value in the eyes of God, about your future, about your present about the fact that there is no condemnation for your past, that your sins are forgiven. He tells lies about who we are and about who God is. And one of the reasons that this world can be a painful place is because there is a dragon serpent who is spewing out deceit into this world constantly. Floods of lies about God. And another thing that he does is slander. Back in verse 10, we read about him as an accuser a slanderous person. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to the slander that he says about you, the accusation, the guilt, and the condemnation. Don't listen to it from him. Don't listen to it from anybody else. And don't listen to it about anybody else. Can I just tell you, church, if you participate in slander, you are participating in the devil's specialist skill. He is a slanderer. And no matter what somebody has done, do not tolerate slander about another person. Do not tolerate it. It's one thing warning somebody about a person who is dangerous. It is another thing slandering another human being. And if you find yourself in a context where somebody is being slandered, 
somebody is being dragged through the muck, regardless of what they've done or whether or not anybody thinks they deserve it, don't tolerate it. Interject and say, no, this doesn't achieve anything and this is not the way we should be speaking and this is not the way I want to listen. Slander is the devil's work. This dragon that's been downcast cannot do it on his own. He needs help, so he goes and recruits some help. We're not going to go into any detail at all, but I just want to point out two helpers that he has in Revelation 13. It's just like there is a trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The enemy has a trinity as well. There is the dragon. And then at the start of verse 13, we see where he is. He is standing on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now, if you want to understand beasts coming out of the sea, don't go and stand uh, on the Causeway Coast or at Murloc and look at the water to see what happens. Go to the book of Daniel, go to chapter 7, and you will see four beasts coming out of the sea. Whenever beasts come out of the sea in the scriptures, what you've got is a representation of evil world kingdoms and powers. Controlling, manipulative, oppressive, corrupt governance and kingdom. That is what the beast from the sea represents. And he is one of the allies of the dragon. There's the dragon and there's the beast from the sea. And halfway through chapter 13, you're introduced to another beast from the earth. And later on, he's referred to as the false prophet. I believe the beast from the sea is corrupt political kingdoms, oppressing, manipulating, putting people down. And I believe the beast from the earth, the false prophet, is corrupt, manipulative religion that leads people away from worshipping Jesus and leads them into worshipping the beast. It's an interesting study, Revelation 13, but we can't do that today. So how do you slay a dragon? I'm nearly done. How do you... This downcast dragon, the war has been won in heaven, but this dragon serpent is on the earth wreaking havoc. How do you conquer a dragon? The dragon of this nativity scene, how do we fight against him? Verse 11 of our chapter, chapter 12 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's how you overcome a dragon, by the blood of the Lamb. The dragon that comes with slander and accusation that what you have done cannot be forgiven. What you have done is a blight that will affect you for the rest of your life. What you have done, God cannot wash away from you. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Throughout Revelation, you have this figure, this awesome figure of the Lamb that was slain, Jesus. We overcome, we slay the dragon by his victory on the cross and by the word of our testimony, the proclamation of Jesus' victory, the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the dead. This is the flow. This is, this is what is coming from the throne of God. This is the, the flow from the mouth of Jesus, this flow of life. John 6 records an exchange between Peter and Jesus where Peter says, Where else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
And Jesus says in John 8 that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free as opposed to the father of lies. The best lie detector in the world is truth. And the more you meditate on truth, the more you ponder it, the more you store it up in your heart and in your life, the more you invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word of God to you, the more you will be armed and you will not fall for the deceit of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet that we read about in Revelation. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of witness, the word of testimony, the proclamation of Jesus that we continue with even in the face of death. And it would be lovely to take that verse and to soften it and to say that it means something other than what it means, but it means what it says. And for many people throughout history and many people in the world today, that is the reality. The reality of standing for Jesus can lead to death. So in conclusion, the advent that began, we talked about it last week, the advent that began outside the Garden of Eden with a man and a woman standing outside the gate, banished, exiled from the garden. They had a promise of a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent who had deceived them. An advent began in Genesis 3 and all through the Old Testament, Advent has been racing to its fulfillment and its fulfillment comes in Revelation chapter 12. Eve was told about pain in childbirth. She was told about a male descendant who would crush the head of the serpent. And now in Revelation 12 verses 1 and 2, we have a woman pregnant in labor, in pain, crying out. Simultaneously, there's a war in heaven A serpent is hurled down and a voice cries in verse 10, Now, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now, Advent is fulfilled at the nativity. Advent is fulfilled at the manger because in the life of that child, a war is being waged in heaven and the serpent is cast down now. (laughs) This is the best time to live in all of history. All the money in the world would not take me back to the Old Testament. It would not take me back to the advent and the waiting. We live in the fulfillment now The serpent has been cast down. Salvation, power, kingdom, authority, all because of the child who was born. Jesus preached it himself. In Mark 1.15, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. It has come now. He says it in Luke chapter 4 as he preaches in the synagogue in Nazareth using Isaiah 61 as his text. And he says, Now, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Paul talked about it in Galatians 4 where he speaks about in the fullness of time that God sent his son born of a woman. The fullness of time. Advent had passed and the climax was being reached. The exile was ended. Sin was forgiven Now, this is a great time to live. Jesus came to destroy the work of the evil one, according to 1 John 3, 8. 
read it this morning in, in my reading plan. He came to destroy the work of the evil one. There is a war raging in the manger, in the stable, in the nativity. Don't allow a lot of the beauty of the Christmas season to deflect from the fact that the birth of this child is an act of war. It is the climax of centuries and millennia of waiting for a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. And because there's been victory in the heavens, there is a raging serpent dragon on the earth. He still wages war, but he is still not strong enough. Let's pray. Father, 